What's up, everyone? My name is Michaela Nemhard, and you're listening to the Sanctus Church Podcast. Our mission here at Sanctus is to glorify God by reaching and enabling people of all ages and nations to become fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. Let's get ready to hear the word. Mary, Mother of Jesus, but called the Mother of God? Mary is one of the most recognizable figures in all of human history. We find her in the art in many cultures on Earth. Some call her the first Christian. Others call her the New Testament tabernacle. God calls her blessed above all women. It seems like some venerate her, others worship her, and others want nothing to do with her. Is she a model or example for us? How should her life and walk with Jesus affect how we view Jesus? Why does she matter? How can her story help us better understand Christmas and beyond Christmas, encounter Jesus for the first time or meet him in a brand new way? How does her story help us become more fully devoted followers like she was? Hey, Sanctus Church, good morning. Welcome back to the Christmas season. Welcome back to the Advent conversation we're all having. Welcome back to the series as we're looking at the life of Mary. Now, before we get to Mary, I want to talk about Christmas carols. Uh, We listen at this time of year to Christmas carols. I start November 1st. Some of you think that's wicked. I'm good with it. We listen, we hear, we sing Christmas carols because we want to invoke joy and hope and almost bring light into darkness. Uh, Most Christmas carols that are Christian-based were written by Christians over the centuries, actually as worship songs to thank God for His first coming. Some, as you begin to dig into their history, were written during extreme periods of darkness and and terror, and they expressed longing for God to make things better, not just in the future, but now. Now, one very, very famous Christmas, uh, Christmas carol is I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day. Um, You might know that one. It was written by a guy guy named Henry Wadesworth Longfellow. He was in his day in the United States, uh, celebrated as a literary uh, critic and poet. And he's the one who pens this Christmas carol, but it's actually in a horrific moment. Here's a summary written about him and how this came to be by another. Uh, Henry and his wife, uh, Fanny, had six children. One of them died at birth. Uh, When the oldest son, Charles, turned 16, the whole family went through uh, a vicious tragedy. His oldest uh, son, when he turned 16, uh, was at home, and then his mom, Fanny, tragically died when her dress caught on fire. Her husband, Henry, at that moment, was sleeping. He was awakened from the nap. He saw his wife basically burning alive. He tried to extinguish the flames uh, as best he could, first with a rug and then actually with his own body. But she uh, suffered such terrible burns that the next day uh, she died. Henry's own burns were so severe, he could not even attend his own wife's funeral. And he stopped shaving because the flames burned his face so badly. And so he grew out this huge beard, which of course became associated with his image back then. Uh, At times, he's very honest, he feared that he'd be sent to an insane asylum on account of the massive grief he had over the death of his wife. 
Well, two years later, things get even more difficult. The American Civil War is taking place. His son is now 18 years old. Charles snuck away and joined the Union Army without permission. And on November 27, 1863, Charles was shot through the left shoulder with a bullet and it exited his right shoulder blade. It traveled across his back and nicked his spine. Uh, Charles avoided, by the way, being paralyzed by less than an inch. And on December 25th, Christmas Day, 1863, this man Longfellow, a 57-year-old widow who'd lost already one child, had five children left, his wife has now died tragically in front of him. His son almost was paralyzed. His country is literally dividing at itself and killing each other. And then he writes this poem trying to work out the dissonance in his own heart as he thinks about Christmas Day and life. And here's part, not the whole song. I heard the bells on Christmas Day. Their old familiar carols play and wild and sweet the words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And in despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said. Hate is strong and mocks a song of peace on earth and goodwill to men. Next verse, then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor does he sleep. The wrong shall fail. The right will prevail will, with peace on earth, uh, goodwill to men. This carol was written in extreme tragedy, extreme darkness. But interestingly, and this is the abbreviated, it's much longer than this. He writes this and he's marked by hope. It's almost defiant knowing that God wins in the end. Now today we're gonna to walk through the very first Christmas carol ever sung in history. And it was sung by Jesus's mom, Mary. But the carol also, the first one is sung in a very dark time and actually brings hope and allows her to stand in overwhelming darkness. Let, let me just maybe say this as we get going. Sometimes worship is a weapon. What I mean by that, so, sometimes worship is a way that we resist darkness. And sometimes worship is a way we repeat hope. We are reminded of what is actually true, so we keep going. Now, Mary's the one who sings this song. And let me say what I said last week. Mary is the mother of Jesus, and she's one of the most famous people in all of history. We find her in the art and song and literature of multiple cultures on earth. And it is pretty amazing what the Bible says about her. We discovered some of that last week. But before we get going again today, I just need to acknowledge all of us and where we're all coming from. Like I shared last week, some of you are from another religion, another faith. You might be spiritual, but not religious. Some of you are secular, agnostic, atheist. You might know a bit about Mary or nothing at all. Others of you grew up in the church and you grew up in a Catholic or, or, or Orthodox environment. Mary was at the center of art and prayer and faith. And for some of you with those backgrounds, now you're part of our church or a church like ours, you almost miss her. She's like a lost mom. Others of you left those churches and you're like, I don't miss her at all. I'm so glad that I left those churches because we ended up, it felt like worshiping Mary and not just God. And she got in the way of her son, Jesus. Some of you grew up in different churches where you heard nothing about Mary except it's Jesus' mom. Others of you heard a little bit more about Mary, but she was downplayed because no one wanted you to commit some form of idolatry. Some seem to worship her. Other people honor or venerate her. 
other people want nothing to do with her. And so like I asked last week, is Mary a model or example for us? How, how should Mary's life and walk with Jesus <coughs> affect how I view Jesus? Why does Mary matter? How does her story help me better understand Christmas? And even beyond Christmas, how does Mary's story or Mary's own life help me encounter Jesus for the first time or, or in a brand new way, even though I know him? How does her story and life help us become more fully devoted followers of her son Jesus? Because she was a pretty intense fully devoted follower. Last week, like I mentioned, we learned a ton about Mary, her role, her position in God's plan, what she actually did. And then, of course, it's centered on the moment when Gabriel showed up. And Gabriel did show up and announced all these amazing things. And then he leaves. And then her aunt calls her blessed above all women. And then that's when the very first Christmas carol is sung by Mary. It's what we call the Magnificat, which means in Latin, an outburst of praise. Now, before we get to the carol and the darkness and the concern and all of that, I just want to go back for a brief moment uh, to, to the moment between Mary and Gabriel. And right after the huge reveal, Mary's response to God and the angel, as we found out, was amazing and actually a bit mind-bending. Luke 1.38, I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me as you have said. And then the angel left her. And basically, she says, I'm 100% in, hey, Gabe, hey, Gabriel, you go back and tell our mutual creator I'm the Lord's servant. Yes, I'm willing. Yes, I'm going to risk everything. I know who God is. I know who God is going to be. I can trust him, even though it's scary and it's going to cause trouble. And then it just says, Gabriel left. Uh, incredible light to darkness. I'm sure other than the olive lamps that are burning, nothing else. No one else seems to wake up in the house. She finds herself with her thoughts. And now imagine the emotional state she finds herself in, who just found out as a young teen she's pregnant, and she has to go tell her parents. Have you thought about that? Mary has to go tell mom and dad. And I'm not sure, I'm not quite sure mom and dad are going to buy the, well, God did it. <laughs> and then there's the whole tight-knit community. We forget she's in a small town, in a religious small town. And, and so she's now going to have to announce she's pregnant and it's God who did it. And an angel showed up and everyone's going to be like, no, 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 no. You just slept around. And then there's Joseph. I mean, how does she tell Joseph? She's engaged, which in this culture already means they are legally married. And he's been away building an addition on his dad's house. And the families have met and the contracts have been signed and the tokens have been exchanged. And it's just a mess. And it's actually dark and dangerous. But more on that in a moment. Other than just never forget, God works in messes all the time. So the angelic encounter, epic, amazing, yes, but it does not leave things neat, predictable, or safe. There's no obedience equals blessing here. It feels like bad things happen to good people, faithful people. Well, it says, despite all the danger and the costs that might come to Mary, Mary breaks out in this Christmas carol, this song, like a psalm, and this is how it begins in Luke 146. Mary said, my soul glorifies the Lord. My soul, my spirit, everything in me glorifies, magnifies, rejoices. I break out in song. God is good. He's so good. My soul glorifies the Lord. And then she keeps going. And my spirit rejoices in God. Notice the phrase, my Savior. God is really not just the Savior of the world. He's my personal Savior. I love Him. I'm excited uh, that, that He's doing this thing. And all I can do is sing. Yes, ne never forget, Mary is favored above all women. Yes, she is the God-bearer. Yes, Jesus got his real humanity from Mary. But, but Mary's still a sinner. 
Mary needs a savior, just like you, like us, like me. We humans need God to intervene and save. Mary is just like us, born not of a virgin herself. She was born a sinner, needing God to break into her reality to save her and us from our sin and give us eternal life. And she cries that out in the very first carol. And then she keeps singing the real reason for the song in verse 48. For he has been mindful, that's God, of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. God has moved and God has spoken and God has acted and he's loved me. But, but then it's that phrase, uh, please, I beg you to listen. He is mindful of me. Not just us, me. What a, what a word. <laughs> what a powerful, needed word. This is the cry of so many of us, even in this moment. Mary says God is paying attention personally to me and God is taking care of me. And is that actually not what everyone wants of a really good dad, that he pays attention, that he's present, that he takes care? God sees me, she basically says. And this little line begins to, by, by the way, point out or build out one of the strongest contrasts between the story of Mary and the story of her uncle, the priest, Zechariah. One, one scholar put it like this, in contrast to Zechariah, we notice Mary holds no official position among the people. She's not even described as righteous in terms of observing the Old Testament, that is the Torah, or experience does not take place in the grand temple setting. She is among the most powerless people in her society. She's young in a culture that values age. She's female in a world that's run by men. She's poor in a stratified economy. And further, she has neither husband or child to validate her exi existence. And don't be offended, by the way, in that. 2,000 years ago, women were valid. That's how you had cachet and authority in culture. If you were married and you had children, she doesn't have any of this. And yet she finds favor with God, and she is highly gifted. And this shows Luke's understanding of God's activity as shocking and paradoxical, almost reversing human expectation. Thank God. Well, she keeps saying in verse 49, the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is God's name. Holy is his name. Now, I, I love this. She intentionally chooses a name of God from the Old Testament, mighty one. This is God of angel armies, the divine warrior who does battle with his enemies. It's so interesting that Mary uses this name for God. Why? Because actually the one who is within her, Jesus, has come as the great divine warrior to deal with Satan and his forces that hold humanity in bondage. And again, I just want you to catch this. This 14, 15-year-old girl says, he has done great things for me. Notice how personal all this is. Notice how close to the heart Mary's words come. God owes Mary nothing, yet she has received everything from him. Her story illustrates how God treats us and meets us. Salvation is gift, and salvation is mercy, and salvation is sheer kindness. Salvation has nothing to do with our place in the world's eyes. We're just, we encounter God's grace. Well, she keeps singing that original carol. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with, this is important, underline this, with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. Listen, she intentionally, carefully, 
picks each word in line. Each one of these lines is informed deeply by the Old Testament, the Jewish, the Jewish Bible. She reflects back on holy history to see what God has done. And that phrase, with his arm, means so much to a Jewish audience. The first time we sort of see it is, is this. When God made, nothing, made everything out of nothing at creation, he used his mighty arm. It's a way of talking about exerting strength, divine power, but it's used most in the Exodus. The people of God, right? The Jewish people are enslaved in Egypt and they cry out and that God comes by his mighty arm and sends 10 plagues and humbles Pharaoh and humbles the Egyptian people and takes out the gods of Egypt and by his mighty arm splits the Red Sea and then for 40 years as they wander by his mighty arm provides bread from heaven and water from a rock and quail and all this and then he gets them in the promised land and by his mighty arm they conquer Jericho. See, this is all so important because what's happening is Mary is saying God used to use his mighty arm and he's using it again and the angelic encounters declaring something there's a new exodus happening there's a full exodus happening and the one in her womb Jesus is going to lead this new exodus a new dawn a new age of salvation we will be set free from our pharaoh our slavery to sin death and the demonic. He's going to lead us out of those three Egypts and by his mighty, mighty arm, he's going to lead us into eternal life and he's going to lead us to the new heavens, the new earth, the full promised land and it's going to be done by his arm. Mary's like, I just cannot stop singing. And then she says in verse 52, he has brought down rulers from their thrones, lifted up the humble, he filled the hungry with good things, he sent away the rich empty. Here's her point. She says, look, the proud and the mighty and the rich they always have the last word in human experience. They're the ones who run things and own things and manipulate things. They've got, but with God? No, God has the final say. And God is not bound by what people do. Uh, God is not impressed by what people have. And God works out his will no matter what people think. What no one expects, he decides to do. Well, she keeps singing in verse 54. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, even as he said to our fathers. In other words, she says the whole Jewish faith is now clear, clarified. The long-awaited Christ, the Messiah, has come. The fulfillment of the Old Testament, the promises and the longing and fulfillment of the Jewish faith is now found in my womb. And the descendants of Abraham will not just be Jewish people, but anyone who embraces the God found fully and exclusively through Jesus, the Son of God, the great I Am, now found with flesh on, found in Mary's womb. So this incredible first carol is sung, holy history is being fulfilled. There's this small retreat moment because she spends three months away with her aunt. But then all the darkness and trauma and trouble is still brewing. She still has to face the music, right? So Mary, the story goes, comes home after being at Elizabeth's for three months. And there's this meeting that happens. It has to happen. Uh, it's not recorded in detail. This is how I imagine it happening. Joseph hears Mary's coming home. Joseph goes to meet Mary to maybe show her the progress on the addition to their coming house. I imagine he's so excited to see her. The time for the full wedding is going to come soon. And then she, she shows up and he sees her and then she stands there and he sees her belly. I'm sure the life drains out of him. Their eyes meet 
things like, did you allow this? Did you do this? Hold on, hold on. Did someone hurt you? Did someone take advantage of you? And the conversation would have begun, begun well, there was God and, and Gabriel and Messiah and then this crazy thing with my aunt and uncle and I guarantee he starts shaking his head. I guarantee his face turns red and he, I, something like, we're done. Don't talk to me. Just get out of here. Get out before I do something. I, I just leave. Mary would have left. Minutes turned to hours and days, and then Mary has to go tell her parents. Have you thought about that? What to do? I'm sure in Joseph's, Joseph's moment or life, he moves from extreme anger to sadness to numbness, suspicion, intensely conflicted, self-protection, bitterness, anger, rage, self-pity. How could she do this to me, my family, to her family? She's ruined my reputation. We're already ma married. Remember, this is an ancient culture. You have destroyed my honor. And what can I do? All, and what do I do? All the money I've spent and the time and all the addition I've been building on my dad's house, all our dreams and hopes broken. I, I, something like, you little liar. I'm sure he moved from deep passion for vengeance to jealousy, wondering who the other guy was, to wanting to kill him, then exhaustion, then back to headache. This is the thing that makes you sort of cry from your guts and then you're just numb. Well, after some time, he has to make a decision and the question before him is, what will he do? Well, his mind is made up. He decides to divorce her. Because remember, in this culture, when you're betrothed, you're already technically married. Now, here's the other thing most of us might not know. In this culture, 2,000 years ago, there are two options for divorce. There's a public divorce, which is a formal breaking of the vows, going before the elders of the village, publicly branding Mary as an adulteress, which leads her vulnerable to public execution by stoning. The other way to do this is private. There's two and three witnesses. This allows him to maintain his religious standing in the community and save Mary from public humiliation and actually might spare her from capital punishment. I'm sure he vacillated between the two, but in the end, we see Joseph's true colors. It reads like this in Matthew 1.19. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose Mary to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. The self-restraint of Joseph, the character of this man, shines so bright in the deepest of personal and cultural betrayals. In other words, you could imagine it like this. I will be to Mary like God has been to me, merciful. I hate her right now. But compassion and mercy triumphs over anger. So no, I'm not going to hurt her. Though I want to hurt her, I'm going I'm to show mercy. The sadness gives way to decision late at night. Maybe he's like, I need to sleep. I need to sleep. The decision's made. Let all the consequences fall where they must. I'm done. Now, Joseph thinks he's done, and everyone else probably thinks it's done, and there's trauma and danger coming next. But heaven, oh, in heaven, so much is afoot. So the time has now come in heaven for action. Gabriel is summoned by God, by Yahweh again, and his assignment is different. First, Zechariah, priest, temple, then Mary, son of God, young teenager, savior of the world, but now another assignment. Back in heaven, the eternal presence of God, the Father speaks to his chief messenger, Gabriel, and says, you need to leave again. Go to the one that's going to be my son's stepfather. Go to Joseph and hurry. The time is now. Meet him in a dream. Break into the recesses of his mind. The lives of billions of people are at stake, and the literal restoration of creation is at stake. Said in verse 20 of Matthew 1, but after he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, 
son of David. Ah, deep in sleep, in his mind's eye, suddenly, unexpectedly, there the angel was. Deep within the dream, I'm sure Joseph, I would have, began to toss and turn, probably deeply disturbed. Inside his dream, Joseph might have said to himself, this is only a dream, something's wrong, something's happening, so much more. And the angel, this is how I imagine it came, with such power into his mind. And again, just like Mary, that heavy, terrifying presence, and yet a peaceful presence, weirdly at once. Powerful, tall, bright, human-looking, not human-looking. No matter where Joseph would run in his dreams or looked in his dreams, he could not escape this being. I wonder if Joseph kept saying to himself, this is a dream, just wake up, just wake up, this is only a dream, trying to ignore the angel. But then the angel spoke, quiet, simple, otherworldly power. I have always imagined it like a thousand waterfalls. And this is what he says, don't miss it, especially if you've done church for so long. Joseph son of David. This is the only person in Matthew's gospel, which by the way is exclusively written to Jewish people, that calls him son of David. In other words, the only other person called son of David in all of Matthew is Jesus and Joseph. Big deal. Joseph is about to play a massive and critical role in all of this. Gabriel says, don't be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Don't Ready? Don't fear the consequences. Don't fear the stigma. The angel's words, have you thought about this, would cut right through and cover over suspicion, self-protection, bitterness, anger, conflict, exhaustion, pain, revenge, numbness. If It covered all the thoughts, all the words, all the worries. It removed all the calculations. Wow. Not done. The angel says in verse 21, she'll give birth to a son. And you, Joseph, you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. So interesting. Just a pause for a second. When Jesus came on the scene, the Jewish people were expecting the Messiah, hoping and waiting for the kingdom of God to come. And they had been taught their whole lives that when the Messiah came, the Messiah would come and it would be a great religious event, but the Messiah would be political and a military ruler who also had divine power. And he would physically come and he'd throw out the Romans or whoever was oppressing God's people and the temple would be restored and bad politicians would be removed and fake priests would be removed and the missing piece that was so desperate it would be given, but he'd do it politically, militarily, and spiritually. But the Gabriel comes and says, actually, he's come to save family and even enemies. And, And the kingdom was going to be about forgiveness of sin, not destruction and making Israel great again. It's nothing to do with politics. It's about the transformation of the human heart. Well, as Joseph is coming to grips with all of that is taking place, Gabriel just keeps on talking. When he says in verse 22, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord said through the prophet, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Well, when Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord commanded and he took Mary home as his wife. Oh man, if you've done church for a while, you read that so quick. Number one, Joseph needed revelation. Joseph needed intervention. Nothing less than that would change his mind. And and so he does it. He does a full 80, a 180. He obeys. And can you imagine him knocking on Mary's parents' house and meeting the angry, shamed parents? He comes in. He sits with Mary. I wonder if she was expecting another shaming moment or actually I'm going to divorce you publicly and you're going to get killed or a screaming match. And he looks at her and he says... 
know you're telling the truth. <laughs> that angel met with me too. Everything you said wasn't a lie, it's true. My wife, I'm so sorry. There would have been tears and joy and unexpected, nothing is unexpected joy. I mean, nothing's impossible with God. Joseph chooses to become the stepfather of Jesus, and Joseph is called to name him, and we don't know this in 2023, but when you name the child, that means you have legal responsibility over him. So Joseph does that, and Joseph moves from one legal action to divorce Mary to another legal action to adopt Jesus and marry Mary. And now he would have to actually bear all the shame. I, most of us never think about this. He'd have to take on all the looks and all the statements of his parents and her parents and the tight-knit community, and he would have to walk down the aisle, and, and she's pregnant already, and maybe people said, well, did you get her pregnant? And Well, it's interesting. There's this little verse that's added in verse 25. Joseph did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. So Joseph got up and obeyed and honored his wife and put aside the sexual desires and rights and tensions in a marriage and saw the bigger picture. And so they didn't have sex until Jesus was born. But by the way, you might have grown up in a church that talked about Mary was always a virgin. No, it's right here. Mary's not a perpetual virgin. She did have sex with Joseph. They did have other kids and they did do life together. You ever asked what happened to Joseph? I mean, he's only mentioned a few more times in the Bible. The last time we hear about him is in is when Jesus is 12 and he ran away as a junior high and they're looking for him and that's a whole nother sermon. So the question, did Joseph like just die? Was he part of the Christian community of faith before or after Jesus's death or resurrection? We just don't know. Many believe Jesus. Uh, many believe that uh, Joseph died before Jesus went into ministry. Before that thirty mark, Jesus later is uh, Jesus is is later called the son of Joseph in Luke four. Uh, in church tradition, Joseph is the patron saint of the dying because it's assumed that he died before Jesus's public life, and he died with Jesus and Mary close to him, the way we always all want to die with friends and family close to us, and of course God Himself. The question as we're uh, nearing uh, the real epic moment of Christmas Eve, a week or so from now, a week from now actually, the question today though for us is from the life of Mary and even the life of, jo life of Joseph, not only what did we intellectually learn that's new or interesting, but what is God saying to us? Well, like we say here all the time, there's tons of you joining us virtually and physically and you have nothing to do with the Christian faith or you grew up with the Christian faith, but you're not a follower of Jesus or you belong to something else. And what God wants to say to you is actually he wants to remind you of his name, Emmanuel, God with us. You want to know who God is? <laughs> then look at the face, the deeds, the life, the death, the physical resurrection of Jesus, and you'll see your creator, the author of life, the one we're made in the image of, made to walk with, the one that we're made to have a relationship with. He's, he's the only incarnation, the only expression of God within human history. You, you want to know who God is and what he's about and what he offers and what he loves and what he doesn't love, and you, you want to just see him just as clearly as you're looking in a mirror? Just look at Jesus. Years later, Paul wrote these words. It's for you who are seeking and skeptical and, and not committed yet. 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For God said, for the God who said, let light shine out of the darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. You want to know the knowledge of God? You want to see the glory of God? You want to see the light of God? You got to look at Jesus. 
The Bible says because of sin, we can't grasp or get relationship with God. There's nothing in us that would give us the ability to know God personally, not religion that's relying on spiritual activity, not good works, not being kind at Christmas time, not nature, not education, not technology, not our rights, not our looks, not our achievements. We cannot get to God, let alone have relationship with a perfect creator. We've all sinned. We've all walked away. We've all rebelled in the face of the one that created us and wants to be with us. The Christmas story tells us that God, Emmanuel, chose out of his eternal love to reintroduce himself, to come to provide a way back out of the mess we've all made. And he came to save you and set you free from your sins. The question this Advent, this Christmas season, for you who are wrestling, seeking, wondering, or not looking, is what do you do with Jesus? Because he offers eternal life, forgiveness of sins, and he offers purpose. Uh, Tons of us watching this, listening to this, we're followers of Jesus at different stages and and ages. Um, Some days, months, some decades, some literally a lifetime. There are two things that stand out, and actually they really do matter. First, Mary in uncertainty and fear declares the power of God. She sung out these words, the mighty one has done great things for me. The God of angel armies is fighting on my behalf. So let me ask you this question. And yes, of course, preachers are supposed to say things like this, but genuinely I'm asking you this question. What battles are you facing? What giants are you facing? Are they demonic? What fears, what setbacks in family, friends, relationship, job? I just want to remind you who's for you. I want you to be reminded of who the Lord Almighty is. No one can ultimately thwart the plans of God. God will and is fighting for you if you are one of His children. And the invitation, like we heard when when Henry wrote that famous carol during the American Civil War in Family Tragedy or under this inspiration of the Spirit when Mary broke out with the first carol, call upon the Lord, remember you're not alone. We, We talked about this in our summer series. God fights for us. Remember Paul. Remember he was trying to get at a local church and talked about how spiritually brutal it was. He talks about this in 1 Thessalonians 2.18. We wanted to come to you, especially I did again, Paul did. I, Paul did again and again, but Satan stopped us. Like this is a real war. And then he prays this incredible prayer in 1 Thessalonians 3.11. Now may God and the Father himself and the Lord Jesus Christ clear a way for us to come to you. In this Christmas season, when we are facing some real giants, some of us in family, friends, work, situation, faith. Number one, we need to sing the truth to remind us what is ultimately true so we're not swallowed whole. And number two, we need to call on the Mighty One into the situation to clear a path that is impossible. Your prayer during this Advent moment is, Lord, you're the Mighty One. Show up and do this. But if I can step back and speak to even more of us, if you're willing to go here, I hope you are. It's that phrase, nothing is impossible with God. Christmas is about joy and family and presents and food and all the things. Yes, all true, but four weeks a year does not remove life, history, pain, or the rest of the stuff in life or the rest of the year. And truthfully, mm, truthfully, Many of us are like Joseph before the dream. Many of us are like Joseph before the angel, but after the betrayal, in the middle moment. 
And then God, as we read, God, through one of his angels, walked right into the core, into the depth, into the center, into the heart of Joseph. Now, just stay with me for two more minutes. Ready? God, through an angel, meets Joseph in his most vulnerable place. He meets him in his dreams, a place where Joseph would have to listen, a place where all the pain and sin could not be built into walls, a place where Joseph could not be too busy to hear God, too angry to hear God, too overwhelmed to listen to God. See, this Christmas, as a Christian, do you know that the same God that sent Gabriel still regularly is in the business of meeting and changing and kindly and lovingly encountering those who already know him and giving, well, here's the word, freedom. Joseph needed revelation. Joseph needed intervention. Joseph needed freedom. Nothing less would change his mind. And the same is true, not for all, but for many of us who are gathered. So let me ask this question. And by the way, don't ignore what I'm saying. Don't go on your phone. Don't get distracted. What's your Mary Joseph moment that you have not recovered from yet? The thing that you actually have not recovered from. I'm going to stop and do something. I'm going to literally ask the Holy Spirit to bring to your mind the moment that you've not recovered from that he wants to actually encounter. I'm just going to pray. Father and Son, across our church and beyond our church, in this moment, bring the person, the image, the situation into people's mind right now that you want to talk to. Don't let the evil one interfere. Distraction, just speak, Lord. Okay. You got that moment? What sin or pain has that moment produced in you? Suspicion? Self-protection? Bitterness? Anger? Fear? Unbelief? Pain? Confusion? Calculation, vengeance, self-pity, jealousy, numbness, exhaustion? Well, I'm going to lead us as I end in this prayer. And it's an invitation for God by His Holy Spirit to walk into this moment and bring freedom and life in a very unfreeing death environment. Maybe you'll pray with me. Emmanuel, God, that is God with us. Would you come, would you pass through all I've put up, all I carry, all my rights, all I hold so tightly in my hands, all, all I knowingly or not walk around with, and I'm going to ask you, Holy Spirit, bring Jesus. Come afresh, come anew, come to the core of me, my deepest place, the place where I can't avoid you or push you away or dismiss you. And would you utter words that will overcome what kills my joy? and stops my spiritual growth and breaks my love for you and my love for others and even love for myself. You gave Joseph another option, another way. Actually, it was your way. And you gave Mary a new song. So come, Lord Jesus, come and heal me so I can forgive. Come, Lord Jesus, heal me so I can love again. Come, Lord Jesus, heal me so I can forgive myself and others in this season. Give me the gift of freedom. And actually, this is very important for some of us. Give me a new song so I can sing again. Lord, thanks that you never stop working. 
For those among us who don't know you yet, open their eyes to the beauty and power of Jesus. You might need to do it literally through a dream that you'd cut through and reveal who he is. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would clear our path as we fight battles that are so massive and dangerous. And specifically, we pray for a healing and new life in ways we can't imagine this Christmas. Nothing is impossible for God. We pray this in the name of Jesus, who was in Mary's womb, and Mary followed her whole life. Amen. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to learn more about us, please visit our website at sanctuschurch.com. There, you'll find ways to support our ministry and God's vision for this church. Last but not least, if you like what you're hearing, be sure to hit that follow button to be notified when another episode releases. All right, I pray you're blessed by the word and we'll see you next week.